you would, um, please take the Bible out in front of you, or if you brought yours from home, take that one out. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And again, if you didn't bring a Bible, take the one out in front of you. I want you to have this in front of you because we're going to spend some time in places other than our reading today. Um, It's always helpful as you're looking that up to know also that if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, um, I had somebody come up to me just like a week or two ago and they said, Pastor, I can't find my Bible. Is it okay if I take this one home? Yes, please do. We just ordered another case. They are gifts that we want to send home with you that you might bring God's word wherever you go and bring it back when you come back to worship. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, when they they went up to the festival according to the custom, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a beautiful fall weekend it's been, hasn't it? Uh, As many of you are coming in, we talked about all the things we've tried to do outside uh, the last couple of days, 70s and sunny. Uh, And I was mindful as as I was preparing for this morning that if I started my sermon that way like a month or two ago, um, it would not have quite had the same ring to it. Because 70s are nice any time of year, but in August or September, they're more or less expected, much more so than late October. And we all know that by the time November rolls around, 70s are going to be certainly over. I looked ahead, you might not want to know this, a month from now, you want to know what the record high and low? is in November. Uh, The record high is 64 and the record low is negative four. So we could be scraping off our car windows four weeks from today. So soak it up. And we all know, living in the Midwest, that, that this is the par for the course, right? This is the way it looks. Life gets a little wonky as the seasons change. And yet we also know that every season has a purpose. It it harks back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where the writer says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And then there's this long list that was put to music. You might remember the song. It begins, A time to be born and a time to die. And we're going to focus on that particular part of that verse 
as this new sermon series begins that we're starting this morning, we're calling Seasons. Specifically, we're going to ask the question, what does the message and calling of Jesus look like in the different seasons of life? Does faith and kingdom living look the same for somebody who's in adolescence as it does to someone who's in retirement? What does the hope of the gospel look like for a child or for a parent or for somebody who's single or for somebody who's married? We're going to explore those questions and others and we're going to do it by looking at different seasons in life in stories that we find throughout the gospel of Luke. And today we're beginning with a familiar story. We're beginning with the season of childhood. We're looking at the way the gospel communicates grace in the season of childhood in a familiar story from Jesus and his parents. Now, I was reading this, and and I was reminded of a story that I shared once before. It was about eight years ago now. How many of you were here eight years ago? Oh, okay, not not even, maybe about half of you were here eight years ago. If you weren't here on Easter, though, you might not remember this story. Uh, I was working in my basement office, and I was working on my Easter sermon, of all things, and I got a text message on my phone, and it said this, a 911 call was placed at 11.08 a.m. from the address of Thomas DeGroot. I am at the address of Thomas DeGroot. <laughs> and if you don't, so we had, a, we had a landline, if you don't remember what those are. Uh, we had a, a phone that was attached to the house, and we had this service attached to it that any time an emergency call was placed from that phone, Alyssa, my wife, and I would get a text message. But I'm sitting at home, <laughs> And there's nothing wrong, so as far as I can tell, I'm sitting there working in my basement office. And before I could even think uh, to to look into anything, I got a second text message. A 911 call was placed at 11.09 a.m. from the address of Thomas DeGroo. Now I'm concerned. I put my phone down or in my pocket, and I run up the stairs to see what's wrong. I find Alyssa in the kitchen cooking lunch, and I asked her, I said, did you call 911? And she looked at me like I was crazy, <laughs> said, no, I didn't call 911. So then I went to look for our boys, who were only eight or five and, and three at the time, and they were in the playroom in the front of our house. And there is a landline phone in the playroom. It was, it was not off the hook, but it's important detail for you to know that there was a phone in that room. And I looked at both of them, and they were playing very, very quietly with their toys. Five and three-year-olds are not quiet, by the way. <laughs> And I said, did you call 911 with the phone? And they both said no with their words. But Jacob, who's five, said yes with his eyes. (laughs) And so I pulled Jacob aside and I said, Jacob, tell me the truth. And he looked at me and immediately, I mean, he, he, he can't lie. And so he looked at me and he said, Daddy, I just meant to dial 1234. And now I realize there is not an emergency in my house. And so what's my knee-jerk reaction to deal with this situation? It was to pick up the phone and call 911 again. (laughs) 
Because I thought I need to tell them that there's not an emergency. Little do I know they probably call like the SWAT team or FBI or somebody when you call 911 three different times. And so I call 911, they answer the phone, 911, what's your emergency? And I said, my name is Thomas DeGroot and I'm calling to tell you there isn't an emergency. I think my son just called you several times. And the woman on the other line said, yes, he did call several times. And I said, there's nothing wrong you don't have to worry about it. And she said, no, I'm sorry, but we can't cancel the call. There's already an officer on their way to your house. And I said, okay, ma'am, thank you. And I hung up. Now, Jacob's standing right next to me, and he's watching this whole thing play out. And I knelt down on my knee, and I looked at him, and I said, Jacob, because you called 911, the police are coming to our house now to make sure that everything's okay. And suddenly, you could see in his face the seriousness of what had just happened. He was terrified. And before I could explain anything more, he ran away from me. And he ran straight into his room, straight into his bed, and under the sheets. And as far as I could tell, he was never going to leave. (laughs) And I could not. I tried to explain to him. I said, you know, we should just sit out front and just wait for the officer to come and you can talk to him. And, And he did not want to leave that bed. And so I did the only thing that I could do, and I crawled into bed with him. And that was my Easter sermon that weekend, was this connection that reminded me in that moment that 2,000 years ago, that's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? He, he climbed into our mistakes, he climbed into our sin, he climbed into the darkness and brought in his Lights. Now, for the record, it's been eight years. Some of you might be wondering what happened to your son, Jacob. Um, well, first of all, we found out that the real reason that he called was because his three-year-old brother, Evan, had swallowed a piece of gum. That was the real reason. There was an emergency in his head. Um, I am also happy to say the courts were very lenient on him. He was only sentenced to six months in jail um, for calling. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I say that for the next service. If there's kids in there, I want them to hear, don't call 911 unless it's serious, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The officer showed up, and actually, the officer that came to our house was our neighbor, <laughs> And so, so we, we knew him, and he made sure that everything was okay, and that was the end of it. But the reason that I, I just came to my mind, the reason I'm sharing it with you today, is, is that as I read this story about Jesus and his parents, it's the perspective of his parents that come to my mind as a parent myself. When, when I found out that my son called 911, just to be completely honest with you, I was embarrassed I was a little afraid. The fact that it was a police officer that I knew actually made it kind of worse because it was even more humbling. Even though I knew in all of this that in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. But what all of this required of me and of my son and of the police officer was something that every child needs from the gospel, and that is to find God's grace. 
And that's what we're going to talk about as we get into our reading today in Luke chapter 2. Now, you might know this story well. We, we come across it in the lectionary readings. It usually comes right after the story of Christmas. If you're looking in front of you in your Bible, you'll see in verse 16, you've got the Christmas story and the angels and the shepherds and all of that in chapter 2. And you've got, you've got Jesus being circumcised and given the name Jesus in verse 21. In verse 22 of chapter 2, he's 40 days old. Uh, my, my youngest son is only 13 months old, so I can still remember about that time is when they're starting to really crack their first smiles, and Jesus is presented in the temple. And then you see that we fast forward through to 12 years in just two verses. There's not hardly anything in the Gospels about Jesus' childhood. And we're going to fast forward through 12 years in just two verses. Verse 39 says this, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and say this part with me, the grace of God was on him. The grace of God was on him. There's not very many details about Jesus' childhood, but if you're a parent, you probably would agree that this summary would be good if it was true for our own children. Jesus grew up in his hometown, right? He, he became strong. You know, that's what we want our kids to grow up strong. He was filled with wisdom. But the part that I want to focus on today is the last part. The grace of God was upon him. See, every time I read this story, that's the part that jumps out to me because we want our kids to be strong. We want our kids to be smart. We want our kids to grow up in wisdom. But what every child and parent needs even more than those things is grace. Grace is what's going to carry them through what happens next. At the beginning of the reading, you remember what happened here is Jesus was traveling with his parents the 65-mile journey as the crow flies to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this was not unique for them or for any Jew. Everybody who was able would go. But for Jesus, it was unique because Jesus has just turned 12. And, and when you turn 12, this means that as a young Jewish boy, you are preparing for your place as an adult in the Jewish community at this time. And so this is an important Passover for Jesus. Verse 43, after the, Passover, the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. That doesn't sound like much of anything except for the next part. They were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day and they began to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, every time I read this story, I ask the parents in the room, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever lost a child? <laughs> in Walmart, in Disney World, wherever it might be, some of you are raising your hand. It's a moment of confession for us right now. And you can confess because you are in good company with Jesus' own parents. They forgot Jesus. And before we get too hard on ourselves, and before we get too hard on them, there's a little bit of context that's really important here. First of all, Jesus is 12. He can fend for himself. In the caravan of family and friends, he could have been hanging out with his cousins or doing whatever 
it was. And I see Mary and Joseph as good parents because their parental instinct still kicked in. They still noticed that their son was missing. And can you imagine that from the time they left to the time they found him, three days, can you imagine losing your child for three days? And yet that's what happened, and they had a very human, normal response where grace is going to be needed when they were reunited with their son. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Say that part with me. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Son, why did you call 911? <laughs> Right? Completely normal human response. Astonished. Grateful he's okay. But when we get home, you are going to be in so much trouble. And it's this moment right here that grace is needed. Son, why have you treated us like this? This part gets me every time I read this story. I've shared it with you before. They got confused. Mary and Joseph... Because they assumed that what Jesus did was he stood, stayed behind to do something to them. Son, why have you treated us like this? And, and I think about my own relationship with my kids. I do the same thing as a parent. When, when somebody called 911 in my house, of course I was worried that there was something wrong in my house. But as soon as I learned what really happened... I'll be honest, the thing that came to my mind was, what is this going to mean for me, right? That's why I called 911 again, because I was concerned about me. Son, why have you treated us like this? Parents in the room, if you're a parent now, if you've parented young kids, if you hope that God will lead you to a place where you might parent, if you've been parented, and we've all been parented what kind of parents are you? What kind of parents has parented you? When it comes to discipline or giving advice, what motivates us when, when your kid acts out in Walmart or in Piggly Wiggly and you start doling out consequences? Who are those consequences really about? Is it fueled by your deep desire to have your child understand how it is to behave in public or is it more that you're embarrassed about what others might think in that particular moment. I've, I've shared this many times before. Our first foster son, uh, my wife and I are foster parents, and, and our first foster son was just under two when he was placed with us. And uh, he had this, this horrible habit when he got comfortable in our home and with us as a family uh, where we would go into places like Walmart and he would scream his lungs out. And it was really embarrassing for me. <laughs> Not for him. <laughs> he couldn't care less. He did it because he knew that he could get away with it, but it was extremely embarrassing for me. Son, why have you treated us like this? And so you look back at Jesus. He, 
He had interrupted so much more than his dad writing a sermon for Easter Sunday in the basement. He, he interrupted so much more than the silence in Walmart or a grocery store. Jesus' parents wasted three days of travel, not to mention the anxiety and the worry on their hearts. Remember, angels came to tell them how special this son was, and they lost him for three days. Son, why have you treated us like this. And it's in this precise moment where it's important to remember that Jesus has been growing not just in strength and not just in wisdom, but he has been growing in grace. And in this moment, it's his parents that are the ones that need to receive grace more than anyone else. Verse 49, why, Jesus asks them, were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what Jesus was saying to them. I love the old King James Version. It translates that verse this way. Jesus said, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? Didn't you think that I would be about my father's business? In other words, Jesus says to his parents, if you wondered where I was, why didn't you start by asking who I am? Why didn't you start by thinking about me? Where would the one be that shepherds and angels visited at his birth? Where would the one be that the wise men came from far to bring gifts to? That, that, that the prophets foretold God would send for thousands of years? Where would that one be? Would he not be in his father's house going about his father's Business. This is the spirit of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to each of you the interest of others. As parents, it's not to say that we're not called to... To, that we're called to ignore our own response to our child's actions. That's not the case. But it does say that they should not be our primary or first motivation. Our little foster son, who was two, what we learned in training, and whenever I share this story, I remind you of this, was that the children that come from abusive backgrounds can be extremely timid at the beginning of getting to know new adults in their life because the adults in their lives have, have not been able to care for them in a way that is safe and, and well. That's why they're in foster care. And that was the case for our first foster son. And so what they tell you is that one of the really good signs that a child is beginning to learn to trust that a child is beginning to learn to receive love, that a child is, is beginning to learn how to heal is when they feel safe and bold enough to do what every kid does, and that is to do what they're not supposed to. <laughs> like screaming in Walmart and looking at their foster dad and going, yeah, I know you're not going to do anything about it, and that's why I'm doing it right now. You know why? Because it's at that point that they've experienced Grace it means that they've crossed the threshold that shows them that when they do bad things, the adults in their life don't hurt them. They've been called to guide them. 
Now, does that mean that you accept screaming in Walmart? No, of course not. Does it mean that you don't explain to your kids why it's not okay to call 911 unless there's an emergency? No, of course we explain that. For the record, I have five kids now, and nobody's called 911 on accident since then. They've called on purpose when our microwave started on fire, but that's another story for another sermon. Does it mean that you're not embarrassed? When your kids make mistakes, to this day, there are still things that embarrass me as a parent. Less than before, but there are still moments that I need to be reminded, that I need to be reminded that for my child, it has to begin with who they are and whose they are and what they need, not primarily what I want. The job of a foster parent. The job of any parent, for that matter, is to have a radically different response to our children than they're going to experience anywhere else in the world. And it is a response that derives from the gospel of grace. And the reason grace is so important is because it isn't the law that changes our hearts. It's grace that changes our hearts. And any parent will tell you that at the end of the day, that's what we want to see changed. It's less about our motivation to make sure our kids never make mistakes because our kids are just like us. It's always more about them becoming the men and the women that God has designed them to be. Grace was required in Jesus' relationship with his parents. And look at how it turned out after that. Verse 51, you'd think this would have been a horrible moment of breaking with his parents, but it wasn't. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It turned out okay. It turned out okay because of grace, and it reminds me of the one important difference that I always point out in this story between our parenting, those of us who are parents or have been parented in our relationship with our kids and Jesus and his relationship with his parents, because in our relationship, parents and children and children and parents, in the cosmic eternal scheme of things, we are actually not very different from our kids. Jesus was very different from his parents. We are not very different from our kids. We, we struggle. Parents in the room, grandparents in the room, we struggle with the same issues our kids do. It might look different. I might not call 911 when my little brother swallows chewing gum, but I could give you all sorts of examples of times that I have overreacted in fear. It's the same thing. My curiosity gets me into places of trouble. One of the last times I preached on this passage, I read a quote by Pastor Paul Tripp. He's a psychologist, and, and he said this about parenting. He said, there are few things that you will ever identify in the life of your children that you can't find artifacts of in your own life. That's the gospel in parenting. The playing field is level. What's actually going on is that both people in that conversation desperately need the rescuing grace of Jesus. I look at our foster kids over the years and I look at the tough places that they come from and I know that I wouldn't be any different if I spent the first two years or however long it was in some of the conditions that they have experienced. I look at my own kids 
And I have to look at my wife, Alyssa, and I have to say, I'm sorry, because <laughs> I did the same thing. I had this experience just, just last year. I was sitting in a, in a parent-teacher conference. I've been doing that um, the last couple of years. I've been the parent assigned to go to these things. And I sit with my kids' teachers, and if they're ever challenged in anything, I, I actually said this to one of the teachers just a couple of years ago. I said, my son looks just like me. <laughs> I struggled with the same Thing And it's true for all of us. And so parents, no matter how old your kids are, how do we apply this? There's two ways. First of all, start by looking at any situation through the eyes of your child, through their perspective first, before your own. And parents, those of you that are struggling with your own children right now, no matter what age or season in life that they might be in, I, I have to say this to you their struggle might not have anything to do with you. (laughs) And it might very well have everything to do with the battle that is going on inside of them and nothing to do with whether or not you are being a good parent. Look at the story of Jesus. had nothing to do with his parents. It had everything to do with who he was and where he was supposed to be. And so start by looking at the situation through their eyes. Second, find ways to climb into the situation with them. Climb into the bed that they're hiding under the sheets and waiting in. Where do I see the same fears in my life, the same mistakes, the same challenges? And you can do this as a parent of a toddler who's stealing toys. You can ask yourself the same question. Where are my selfish tendencies? Where do I live out in fear? How can I relate? And and I always think this, and I've gotten this question over the years as well. Won't your kids think you're weak if you do that? And the answer to that question is yes. (laughs) Yes, they, they very well might. But that's okay because parents... Our job as parents is not always to be strong. Our, parents, our job as parents is to point to the one who is always strong because the reality is your kids need him more than they need you, and you need him too. And the best way to teach our kids that truth is to show them that we need God. 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul says, My What God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. As we conclude, I want to show you a video. I've shared this a number of times in the past, but this video really pulls this gospel of grace together in the season of childhood and in every season as we are all finding ourselves as children. Let's watch. 